you add a Y on dad and it becomes sexy, but if you add a Y on uncle, it becomes unky, which to me is not sexy. <laughs> That's a different different kink. Yeah, I, it's like a baby thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not an age play kind of guy. <laughs> Here's the problem is that I'm saying these words out loud thinking, do I have the balls to make them into the cold open? <laughs> This is Chapel Bell Curve. I'm Nathan. And I'm Justin. And today we're here to figure out what the hell just happened in Columbia, Missouri. What the hell just happened? Yeah, if this is your first time joining us, we are going to be taking a qualitative and quantitative look at UGA's 26-22 win over the fighting Missouri Tigers of Central Missouri. And we will be in our qualitative preview doing a little bit of talking about our experiences, doing some newsy stuff, and then getting into just the flow of the game, storylines coming out of the game. And then in our quantitative preview, we will be looking at some stats. We will be looking at some play concepts. We will be looking at some PFF grades today on and off. And just generally trying to break the game down without our emotions, which are, I have to say, probably running pretty high for many in the Bulldog Nation. If you love what you hear today, remember, as always, that you can donate a little bit of your of your hard-earned scratch and join our, our community. Or join our Discord community through our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. For as little as $1 a month, you can get access to that and you can get access to the podcast early and the show notes if you'd like, which reminds me, I still need to publish those. We think that it's a great community of like-minded people who, if you listen to this podcast, you will probably like. Can I say that whenever you say, you say newsy, you add Y's on the ends of things every once in a while. And newsy is one of those things when you're talking about, you know, we're going to have a news-ish segment, Mm -hmm. but... Every time you say a newsy, you know, we'll get a little newsy. I only can think of the oh hit my God. Broadway adaptation, Newsies, <laughs> with a young Christian Bale. And so I just picture the both of us having a time in our little little caps and vests. I think I could pull that look off, honestly. Oh, 100% you could. I don't know if I could, but I, I don't know why I think it, but I can definitely see you with that entire look on. Yeah, I think I have a wide enough torso that, you know, waistcoats look, they look like dignified on me. Maybe not sexy, but, (laughs) you know, dignified at the very least. Dignified at the very least. I like it. So, yeah, let's talk about our our sort of experiences. I know this is probably because we were apart. You know, whenever you go to, you don't go to a game, we tend to find each other one way or another. And we just have to find some some reason that this went wrong. And we're going to look into the stats in just a moment. But... If we could, for a moment before that, blame something innocuous, that would be that'd be good. That would make me feel better. Okay, well, I can tell you, I can tell you why we near lost this game, and the answer okay, to that is that I did not put on my special boy pants until the third drive, between the second and third drive of the game, and that was my fault. <sighs> so yeah, it took some time to like get them warmed up, even after everything we went through last weekend and you talked about the special boy pants you didn't put them on no you know what i gotta just pro- i gotta i gotta approach this a little bit more a little more professionally okay okay you know what i i don't i just don't think i was i didn't have my head in the game no same though it was a rough time well let's talk about our experiences though a little bit deeper yeah i'd love to so you were at the lake i was yeah i was up, up with family celebrating my mom's birthday it was very nice one thing that i feel like people will ask me whenever i'm with family or with people who know about chapel bell curve they'll ask me did you predict this <laughs> I'm like, yeah no <laughs> yeah 
I did not. And this was one of those situations where in the very beginning, they were doing what they wanted to do, but we were still stuffing them, but they were stuffing us. It was kind of a back and forth stuff fest. That's the, mm. the, the headline of this, this game, essentially. Back and forth stuff fest, Georgia Mizzou. Yeah, my father-in-law looked over and he said, did you predict this? <laughs> I was like, no, this is awful. It is something akin to when you're an English teacher and people are like, oh, if you've read this. It's like, no, I, I haven't read everything. Also, I think that book sucks. I tried to read it once. And that's how I felt when people say that to me. This game was bad. This game felt bad from start to finish. I, I did just sort of, there was a point where I was listening to the broadcast as well. I was just trying to to see if anybody could help me make sense of this. Prior to that, we, we went around North Georgia and brought my mom to some wineries. And it was really fun mm. for her. And she felt very good. She's 50. She's feeling good. She's feeling fresh and free. Um, everything's really nice for her. But th- then we you know watched this game to top it all off. And she was like, Justin, why did you why did you do this to me? Why did you bring me here to this game? How is this celebrating me? Your mother who gave birth to you. It's like, I don't know, mom, I don't make the rules. But yeah, it was it was a rough go of it. I'm glad that she blamed it on you and not on herself. My wife's reaction to this was that basically I am bad luck. I am watching this game and therefore we are only going to beat Missouri by four, which is not a smart thing because she's a very smart lady, but that was not a smart reaction. So I had to assuage her that, no, 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 this is just what it's like to be a UGA fan, as you well know. Your UGA PTSD isn't allowing you to see that we're all unlucky here. But I will say, this is the first kind of UGA groaner game that we've had post-Natty. And I feel like I handled it so much better mentally than I have in the past. I, I, I feel like I was, I mean, I wasn't happy but I also wasn't like in a tailspin. Yeah. I said this on somebody else's tweet at some point this weekend, but I don't know if it was the SSRIs or the Natty, but one of those things was making <laughs> it so that I was reacting to this in a lot more healthy way. It did kind of feel like a little bit of stomach churning deja vu at times. I don't know if this makes me a better or worse UGA fan or just a UGA fan who knows our recent history, but after the Milton turnover, I was kind of like, well, that's it. <laughs> Like we're gonna lose this game. <laughs> this this just yeah. this this is just 2019 South Carolina all over again. We are gonna just fritter away this game on a series of just totally uninterpretable mistakes. But we didn't, so I was happy. But I, I will admit, and I think maybe maybe I don't think I'm a bandwagon fan, but I think this might make me a little bit of a poor fan because that man he punched <laughs> that ball out, and my first reaction was like, oh, we're losing this game. Like, I just, I was so at peace with it by the fourth quarter that when we started coming back, it's so stupid because, like, we were the more talented team and they were owning us in certain areas. But even when they were owning us, we we were winning in a lot of statistical areas that would tell you that we had the chance to make a comeback. But until we scored, I think, the first touchdown in the fourth quarter, I was just like, no, there's no way. There's no way. When we scored to go up four, that was when I started showing actual emotion. That's that's when I was, like, clapping and being (laughs) like, hell yeah, hell yeah. Got to seal the game or whatever. And I I think it's just because I had a literal, like, trauma response. (laughs) I was just like, okay, Mm -hmm. I know how this goes. I'm just going to... Just going to not get hurt anymore. I was just pretty apathetic most of the time, I felt. I was just kind of like, yeah, okay, this is fine. You know, like, watching the Kent State game, I still felt pretty confident. I thought it was Kent State also, but I don't really think in the long run, it, it... looking at it from you know thousand foot point of view it doesn't really feel that different you know kent state or missouri Mm -hmm. but the fact that it happened two weeks in a row that was kind of why i just sort of went uga nihilist and started thinking like oh we deserve this this is fine it's fine it's just how it goes how very kurt vonnegut of you right kurt vonnegut said that 
you can't plot a good story on good fortune to ill fortune that real classics are just a series of events that don't make sense to the characters happening in them or to us and that's the way that real world is and yeah i think we are always kurt vonnegut we can put on our newsy caps and get our big sling bags full of news news broad print in a minute but I do think before we get into that section, I do want to say that the big storyline I take out of this game is that this is a game that in the pre-Natty era, and in particular in the Mark Richt era, that I feel like we would just lose. I usually don't like to talk about body language or morale or momentum, but I thought it was interesting and kind of telling that this team didn't really look panicked in the third and fourth quarter. Javon Jumas Johnson was just tearing someone a new asshole at some point on the sidelines <laughs> after they gave up a long play. But it didn't seem like we were in a Houston situation where anybody was like throwing punches or anything. And I think that this is, to give him his absolute due, it was an incredibly mature performance from Stetson. It wasn't good at times, but in the past we've seen Stetson get hit with a cover zero look or get hit with an all out blitz or a double eight blitz or just basically any time a defense would rush five or six and get pressure up in his face. We've seen Stetson throw some really inadvisable picks and he didn't do that to his absolute credit. I, you know, we, we can talk about this more, but I don't think he was at a hundred percent certainly. And even in a time where he was having objectively a bad game, he seemed to be pretty just okay with kind of playing the process, trusting his teammates. And I mean, honestly, winning the game at times. And so I mm-hmm. think it is even in a scare. And even though maybe this scare presages other defeats coming up on the, the schedule. And I think that's something we can think about going forward there was still evidence of me of a pretty quantitative sea shift, sea change in where this UJ program is. You know, Alabama has long lost the occasional head-scratching game, and no one really questions it when it happens because their their general MO has been to just, like, evaporate teams after they lose the head scratcher. And we didn't lose that game, but I do think that UGA, at least comportment wise, acted like Alabama when they have the the head scratching close game, you know, and I actually mm-hmm. am going to be really interested in seeing what we do against Auburn next week, a game that I think that we should win just because, you know, I think that is like one of the last steps of, of the Kirby builds Alabama, you know, 2.0 is showing what you do when you have a bad game. Right. So if this is Alabama who had just almost lost this game, we would say, Oh, poor Auburn. They, they're about to get, evaporated you know they're about to get absolutely destroyed cut up into pieces and hung up like like a like a meat processing plant but i don't think we have quite yet seen that from uga but i do think that in the missouri game we saw sort of what a team who can do that looks like right the 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 calm of Mm -hmm. the team all the way through this way that they just sort of handled their business even in the face of what was a lot of self-inflicted adversity as well as adversity caused by a pretty well-prepared and coached missouri team that'll be something that we can get into in more specifics in the quantitative segment but before we do that i I do know that we have a couple of news things do you want to hit the uh, jalen carter situation so I believe it was in the was in the first or second half of the game. I think it was in the second half of the game where Jalen Carter was going for it was a bad block and he ended up just with the MCL sprain, which is really great. But I know in the moment it was very concerning. This was actually the point in the game where I saw what was going on and I was like, oh, this was the first time in the game where I was like, we're going to lose. Like, that's it. You know, our yeah. defense is the only reason we're in, still in this game. We're holding it together. There goes one of our best players, arguably potentially our best player. And now he's He's done for the game. But yeah, he'll be a couple weeks, Smart says, most likely. It's just an MCL, which is good, but they don't know how long specifically it's going to be. I think this is going to be one of those things where they're going to be conservative with his return because we 
statistically speaking, should handle Auburn and Vanderbilt well enough. But considering the last two games that we played, that might not be as in the bag as we previously thought. So we'll have to see. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? It was a dirty block. It was a it was a cut block. He was engaged, and then someone mm-hmm. came across. It looked his like legs. a tabletop. Yeah, and I think yeah, it really it really did. It was sort of a reverse tabletop. But I mm-hmm. think you know there's been some sort of chatter about how in the past. App State under Eli Drinkwitz did this pretty commonly. I don't necessarily think that chop blocks are, you know, like taking someone's legs out from under them is a, is a dirty tactic. But when they're engaged and they can't defend themselves, and often when they get rolled yeah. up on the way that Jalen did, I mean, I don't think, know a way to describe that other than dirty. I think that if he's going to be gone for two weeks, you know, that's, I think, a... It's a blow, but it's one that we can absorb. I think that Auburn seems to clearly be in a in a complete tailspin. I think we are past the point where we're gonna sit, where we can say that Brian Harson is coaching for the job, and I for his job rather. And I think that we are just on to the point where we could say that Brian Harson is gonna be fired soon, right? So yeah, it's not think, looking good for you, bud. Yeah, I think barring some kind of massive change in UJ's fortunes, even after the Missouri game, I think that UJ can beat Auburn, even if it's a very ugly looking game with or without Jalen. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to play Missouri. You're going to play Vanderbilt after that, a, a Vanderbilt team that is improved, but still let's face it bad, right? They're, you know, in the top 100 of most statistical categories, instead of being 122nd in all of them. So that, I mean, it, we all saw what they did to Hawaii though. Yeah. yeah. Well, Hawaii, <laughs> one of the worst teams, one of the worst football teams in the, in FBS Hawaii, but yeah, you know, I think that as long as we get him back for Florida, I feel okay about it. And that would be a three-week time frame. So if we're saying, you know, it doesn't look good for this week and it's going to be a week or two, that to me, reading between the lines, feels like the target is Florida. As long as he's back mm-hmm. at that point, I think we should be in good shape. Florida can run the ball. Yeah. You know, Anthony Richardson, while being sort of a very cartoonish quarterback when he throws the ball, is a, is a very good athlete. So. The only other news item that we have is that apparently Javon Bullard will be back next week. Next week, we went into this pretty in depth when he got the DUI that he got, and then on our Discord again, patreoncom forward slash Chapel Bell Curve, we got some more insight into <laughs> tell him how the process works and how the charging documents looked uh, on the Javon Bullard DUI. But from a moral or legal perspective, wah, wah, like I'm not smart enough to say what that means. I don't say womp womp to mean like I'm sad. I say it to mean like I'm dumb. I'm an English teacher who talks about stats and sports. I, I don't want to, I'm not going to wade into if that's right or wrong that he got a one game suspension, but that is what happened and he will be back next week. So I think that yeah. from a football perspective, it matters. Uh, you know, Tyke Smith, I thought played well. They rotated in, you know, they kind of, they brought Dan Jackson in often to play that spot or they put Chris Smith at that spot. But I think it's, not a coincidence that Missouri had some success on jet jet sweeps and ha- had some times where they took advantage of whoever was playing that star or that like linebacker coverage role. Sometimes that was Javon Jumis Johnson or Javon Jumis Johnson is who ended up doing it. Uh, they had some success to number 11, their tight end, some success rather. And I think that part of that was probably that Javon Bullard had just been playing very good defensive football until his DUI. So good to have him back. As to what that means for society or Western civilization, I'm an idiot, so <laughs> eh, I don't know. But Don't know, ask me. I'm a dum-dum. Anyway, so I think that's about <laughs> all we have. This is going to be a pretty quantitative-heavy 
episode. If you are on our uh, Discord or our Patreon at $5 or up, you can follow along in your show notes and you will see that our quantitative show notes are about double the uh, double the length of our qualitative ones. So I have a lot of stuff. I will have one more newsy item if you want to before you get into numbers. It's more of a housekeeping thing and inviting all of you. If you're not on Twitter, you might not see this. And if you're not on Patreon, you might not see this either because you're not on our Discord. But for Homecoming in a couple weeks, we are having a Chapel Bell Curve sort of meetup schedule. So on Friday night, we're going to get together at Creature Comforts downtown Athens from 5 to 7. And we're going to have just a happy hour meetup. There's usually food there. We'll watch the parade because it starts at 6. On Saturday, I'll make my way to go see Nathan for the Sousa show, which should be right around 12.30 p.m. on the Tate Center Bridge. And for those of you that might be in town and not seeing the game, we will be having, uh, we'll just be getting together to watch the party, a viewing party over at All Good Lounge downtown. So that'll be at 3.30. And yeah, kind of from there, it's whatever goes. But make sure to come through and see us if you are around in Athens and want to meet some like-minded individuals. Yeah. We'd love to have everybody out. I will not be there for the stuff on Saturday because I'll be at the game. But, you know, who knows where the night will take us. And given that my old arthritic 85-year-old body can make it past you know, <laughs> 6 p.m. on a game day, I might be, I might be, you know, bullied into coming out. So, but we'd love yeah, to see we'll you see what at happens. any time. We, we, you will see Justin and I. You will see many of the names that you hear very often in our Patreon patron questions segments uh and yeah we think it we think it's gonna be a really good time so come on out yeah we've me we've me a, a beautiful word picture with all these numbers please nathan tell me that it's gonna be okay or just tell give it to me straight and tell me it's not i think the easiest way to organize this would be to talk about it from an offensive and defensive perspective and then sort of overall i can kind of bring it back together and this is gonna be one of those times where i'm just gonna go ahead and and apologize in advance to my good friend Justin that I'm about to just absolutely <laughs> talking filibuster this podcast because I think if you're like me that you are probably in a sort of like oh confused Scooby Doo mood right now. I don't know why we're doing so much sounds, uh, so many sounds on this one. It's an audio medium. I'm a little worried that that last Scooby Doo noise actually read more like Tim Allen, Tim the Toolman, which is not, <laughs> which is not really where I wanted <laughs> it did. to go. So. So just insert Scooby-Doo sound effect here. So if you're like me, you have had a sense of bemusement about where we are and what happened. And I think that this kind of comes from the offensive side first. I think I can, if not prove, at least make a pretty good case that defensively, outside of a few plays, we were in pretty good shape and that there are some things we need to be concerned about, but that really the problems that we saw on Saturday centered around the offense. So I did a little digging into PFF, and I also looked at our good friend SAC StatCats page for a breakdown of the offensive play concepts called from this team, and I think that there are some things that we can take away. So to start with Stetson, Stetson clearly did not look like he was in good space. He doesn't traditionally look good against cover zero looks or double A-gap pressure, or just when somebody is able to get in his face. He is comfortable rolling out left and right, and he's often been pretty good at picking through traffic, especially in passing situations. But if you immediately collapse the pocket on him, he gets a lot worse, which is, that's 99.99% of college quarterbacks. So that's fine. And it is actually to his, to his absolute credit that he went 16 for 20 in the second half. 
and that he led two successful touchdown drives and at times was pretty much the whole offense. To his detriment, I think, is the way he looked in that first half. He was airmailing some pretty easy throws. In particular, it seemed like he was having a hard time on basic swing pass, like a, a, a halfback check down, clear out kind of pass. He just was, he threw it over Kenny McIntosh's head like three times. And I have heard people who know more about quarterbacks than I do say that he was maybe aiming those throws instead of throwing them, that he he didn't look like he was comfortable. I can't speak to that, but what I will say is that he missed throws that we have seen him hit throughout the first three quarters of this game. Coaches in football will often say, are you injured or are you hurt, right? You, you, you should play hurt because everybody hurts at some point, but you shouldn't play injured. And I'm not saying that he is injured, but he certainly didn't look like he felt good. I think he was hurting from something. And in the course of an SEC football season, you know, you're going to get dinged up. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get bruises, whatever. Maybe that's something that he recovers from and he feels good on Saturday and we don't have any issues with it. If it is something that happens again, I don't really know how to adjust my thoughts on him, right? I think that he bounced back in a really mature way in this game, but there were times where he looked like bad 2021 Stetson. And we have litigated the Stetson Bennett case. And I think it's safe to say that when you win a national title, that that takes a lot of the energy and juice out of that argument. But it's just something to keep an eye on. This offense is not all predicated around Stetson, but it is predicated around him making easy throws. But I think that really, any any talk of Stetson really buries the real story uh, the, I think we have to interfa- interface with the fact that this year the offensive line has regressed. You know, on the one hand, that's what we expect. We lost a lot of talent from last year. Jamar Sa- Sawyer started at left tackle for the uh, Chargers this week, I believe. And and we've talked about Tate Ratledge coming back from his foot before on this season uh, and, you know, how he has had some struggles in the run game, particularly on zone read and, you know, inside zone plays. Because often the inside zone is going to his outside hip. But I think what really freaked me out, even though we do, I do think we have problems in the center of the offensive line, and I want to talk about it. But I think the thing that kind of freaked me out was that our tackles, who have been very good this year, and our center, who is kind of the strength and the experience center of the offensive line, pardon my pun, did not look good. <laughs> uh, Cedric Van Pran gave up four pressures. I think Roger Jones gave up three. Cedric Van Pran, per PFF, had a 37.7 pass blocking grade. I saw on Rivals that that was his lowest pass blocking grade of his career. And all offenses rely on having a clean pocket. And in particular, offenses really fall apart when they have pressure from the center, when you have pressure in the quarterback's face immediately at the snap. And in particular, in particular, Stetson Bennett is a quarterback that gets off his game when he has immediate pressure in his face. He's pretty good at stepping up into the pocket, but he gets a lot worse when he has to sort of scramble around from the snap. So that's concerning. You know, I think that the center of the offensive line, I saw Devin Willett got in there a little bit. Xavier Truss is still in the works. I think Tate Ratledge played most of the game and he looked okay, I think, in pass pass set, but still a little bit lost on zone reads. And I, I think that compounding the issues that we have in the offensive line, which again, when we talk about issues, we're we're talking about champagne problems. Missouri is a top 20 defense who exposed Georgia on the line of scrimmage at times. That doesn't mean that every team is going to be able to expose this offensive line. But it is something that if we are still going to play for an SEC championship or play for the CFP, has to get fixed, right? And I think something that makes the problem worse is that our run concept tendencies have been kind of counter, although they are shifting, but they have been kind of counter to what we are good at. So we ran counter 
eight times for 76% success rate and 6.38 yards per carry. Counter is a play where you're moving the you're moving guards and tackles across the play towards the play side. Like we're pulling guards, we're pulling tackles, and it is a gap scheme blocking concept where you just find the guy in front of you and you run him into the ground. Well, you find the guy in your gap, basically. You pick a guy, you run his ass out of the play. We ran that eight times, 76% success rate, 6.38 yards per carry. We ran inside zone, which has been our staple running, is a staple run play for most of college football at this point, 18 times for a 55% success rate and 5.92 yards per carry. Now, to me, if you know that your 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 guards are better at gap schemes and you know that not just counter but also power we ran that a couple of times if you know that your your guards are better at gap schemes why are you calling more than twice as many inside zones as gap scheme plays i think it was telling that in the fourth quarter when we got our crap together on the offensive line to some extent we we actually ran 50-50 we ran inside zone concepts five time and we ran counter and you know, power concepts five times. And that was when the running game started to work. We sealed the game with several toss concepts that are kind of just a different way of doing counter, right? Toss sweeps and toss plays to the short side that we really like to run. And at that, that was when things started to work again. Now, I don't know if that is a matter of this is what our players are good at, or if it's a matter of like, we're just not executing those inside zone runs well. But I know that a lot of the times where someone got strung out to the sideline and had a gain of one, or there was immediately pressure in the quarterbacks or in the running back's face at the handoff, those were caused, those were on inside zone runs. You know, Graham Coffey has talked about this a lot. And it's something that, like, I am not smart enough to give you the full reason why this is. But if we can't block zone run schemes, why are we running them at a two-to-one clip over gap stuff? We run inside zone 42 times, which is 15% of our play share uh, for 12% of our yard share. Okay, On those 42 runs, we have a 66% success rate, and we average 6.21 yards per carry. Power concepts, mostly counter and tackle counter, we've run 22 times for 8% of our yard share, our play share, and 6.4% of our yard share. On those, yeah, on those, um, we are doing six. We have 64% success rate and 6.18 yards per play. So it's interesting to me that even with a much smaller sample size, we are still very successful on counter plays, even with those numbers not reflecting anything against Sanford, because those are FBS only numbers from SEC Statcat. So I, I don't know what the answer is, and I would never, you know, consider myself to be a scheme guy. But there is some combination of running back making the wrong decision guys getting just blown up at the snap and us running you know inside zone into a loaded front onto the into the side of a loaded front that makes it so that we have had diminishing returns on the play that we run more than any other plays in our playbook right and so i i don't know fully how to make sense of that but i would say that in many ways this is a game that was like the perfect game script for an upset of a number one team, right? You have two turnovers and two, I don't want to say fluky turnovers, but two low percentage turnovers. You have a quarterback on the number one team who's just off his game, right? You have the injury to the best defensive player on the field and maybe the best player in the field in Jalen Carter, right? And then you, you couple that with sticking to tendencies that aren't working. And 
you know, I, I'm, I think that I'm not saying Munkin's not doing a good job. He's doing an amazing job this year. He's been absolutely in his bag for four of the five games this year. But I think that he is being put in a rough spot where the inside of his line just doesn't down to down always look great. Yeah. This is a team that is going to run through the pass game first. And that's what we saw in those first four games. But on days when you have an offensive line who also can't always pass block, you need to be able to, to rely on that running game to get you out of tight spots. And the reason this really bothers me, or not bothers me, the reason this alarms me is that Will Anderson is Alabama's best player. Possibly Florida's best player is also a defensive lineman. Mississippi State has a pretty good defense. So I'm not saying that the sky is falling or that this is the seventh seal that's been broken and now we're going to lose to Georgia Tech or something. But I do think that when you can't block, you can't play. People who know about football will tell you that if you want to know, understand who's winning in game, you just look at what happens on the line in the scrimmage at the snap. And the team that wins the line of scrimmage the most wins. And we did not win the line of scrimmage for three quarters of that game. That is not disturbing because Missouri clearly has a pretty talented defense. But it is something to worry about because if this team has aspirations to not even like play for the national title, but to be in the title hunt in November, December, then they're going to have to get that cleaned up. I also wonder about a couple of other play calling things. You know, we ran seven screens, we completed six of them, and even though we didn't execute well, it seems like going back to the screen game would have been smart. You know, I think part of the reason that we didn't do that is that we ran, this, we tried to run the slip screen to a wide receiver or running back a couple of times, and Stetson just absolutely airmailed it over their heads. But to me, like when you have an offensive line that is having a hard time at the snap, and you have a defense that is absolutely crashing down, trying to get into the backfield, the one way to run them out of play and get them to back up a little bit and give your offensive line some times is to is to start hitting those screens a little bit. We we did some of them. We ran a couple of jailbreak screens or tunnel screens or whatever you want to call them, but we didn't do it to the point where it backed Missouri's defense off at all. And part of the problem with that was that obviously Munkin's in a no-win scenario because the whole idea of a screen is that it's one of the easiest to complete balls that you're going to throw, right? And if you have a mobile quarterback who can just back up in the face of pressure and throw a screen over somebody's head, which Stetson has proven that he should do, that is the answer to, oh, we're getting whipped on the pass rush. So I'm not sure what the thought process was. I also thought not to not to second guess Munkin because he knows more about football. He's forgotten more about football than I know. But I do think that pass catching wise, that this is a team that really feels the, the absence of A.D. Mitchell. Yeah. We weren't seeing dudes get separation. I saw McConkey get like smothered, covered, chunked, just like absolutely like eaten up on a couple of short pa- uh, short routes, slants, comebacks, digs, etc. And I'm not sure without A.D. Mitchell to just sort of open up some space for him to work in if his impact is going to be as much, right? I think McConkey is a really good player, but a lot of his success has come when teams have had to play zone coverage because they are really honoring that deep threat from Mitchell and from the tight ends. And on a related note, I'm not sure why Donald Washington only had four targets. He was basically unguardable on the day. He did whatever he wanted. Yeah. He really did do whatever he wanted. And and I'm not sure why we didn't go to him more. It was good to see Aaron Smith back. But, you know, he only had one catch and I think on five routes run. I really think of the guys that were healthy, Don Blaylock is looking better and better. I wonder if that was like he hasn't been practicing as well because of the injury, but he looked good enough that he probably is going to be featured more going forward. Or he should be, especially in the absence of A.D. Mitchell. You know, it's interesting. I think... 
combined, Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers had 130 yards receiving on the day, but it was clear to me, at least, that Darnell was having a much better day blocking. There were a couple of plays where Brock just got absolutely destroyed at the snap on outside running plays. And two, I think that this is that's the strength of this team is getting the ball out to the perimeter and then relying on your best blockers, which are weirdly probably some of your wide receivers and your tight ends. And mm-hmm. so I guess this is all a long way of me kind of talking myself around to, the, to my point, which is that there are things to worry about about the offensive line. But there were some understandable problems occurring, I think, at the logical level of how this offense was supposed to work because of the injuries that we've had. Because to this point, your best bet has been to get the ball outside and let your dudes block in front of fast ball carriers, right? And that wasn't working because A, Stetson Bennett was having some accuracy issues, right? And B, we didn't have the best blocking performance of our of the year from anybody except for Darnell Washington C, right? So am I concerned about some things? Yes. I think that if Cedric Van Pran gets blown off of the ball, you know, on eight or nine snaps against any other team, especially some of these good teams we're about to play, we're going to have a really, really hard day. Is that fixable? Probably. I, I think that he's probably more talented than that game showed. But I think that a lot of our problems had to do with just the the situational aspects of the game. You had Missouri's defense, and I didn't see this coming in, and I won't claim to, I won't claim to, but Missouri's defense had the right answer for a Georgia team that found its game plan not limited, but at least slightly changed by the absence of A.D. Mitchell and by having a dude who can throw Brock Bowers to the ground, which is not, there aren't many of them. Defensively, I thought we fit a lot better outside of the one long run. Zion Logue, I thought, didn't have his best day. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that outside of maybe Bear Alexander or Nazir Stackhouse, we don't really have a zero technique guy. Maybe maybe Nazir Stackhouse, but even he isn't quite like the plug of firewood run stuffer that Jordan Davis was. And I think that a lot of our game plan on the defensive line relies on Jalen Carter just being able to throw people around sometimes. And I think that we saw some good things from Stackhouse and Warren Brinson, even though I think Zion had a hard day. But this is not a team that is going to just be absolutely as unrunnable on as they were last year. And we always knew that from the beginning, but I think this was a game where we really saw it. I think that Keely Ringo had a bad night. He had a just absolutely awful pass interference penalty on third and 17. And he's just got to get his head around, man. He just, I don't know what it's called. Uh, I think it's called like play the receiver, you play the ball. But there are times when it's like, I don't think it was the third and 17, but I, and I can't remember what the penalty was, but he got like a holding penalty at some point where it's like the ball was totally uncatchable, right? He didn't have to mm-hmm. work. So I think he's a really good player as is Kamari Laster, but I think both of them got kind of abused because they either got out of phase or they ran the wrong direction or they just didn't get their head around. And that has got to get cleaned up going forward, especially since we're going to play Mississippi State. I thought Javon Dumas Donson looked a lot better this week, but he did have four missed tackles. There were actually 12 missed tackles on the day, which is totally uncharacteristic for a Kirby-led defense. That's something that you can clean up, but it's just something that has to get cleaned up as you come into this period where you play Florida, Tennessee, Mississippi State. But ultimately, at the end of the day, on three plays, UGA surrendered 126 yards for 42 yards per play. If you take those three plays out, then UGA gives up, in in 50 plays, 168 yards at 3.36 yards per play. That's winning defense. It absolutely is. If you can clean up some of those fixable errors, then I think that this defense is 
you know, it's not necessarily going to be ever going to be a defense like we had last year, but I think this is a defense that you can take to a championship if your offense is is working. Overall, to get finally to the end of what I'm going to assume is just going to be a totally uh, totally unreadable mess of diatribe, <laughs> and I apologize to my future self and our <laughs> listeners. No, I think you're doing a great job. Thanks. The game came down to two turnovers that were, if not fluky, probably little, pretty low probability. And getting your ass whipped up front, which is direct quote from Kirby. A winning team that gets two turnovers and doesn't score until the fourth quarter, a touchdown until the fourth quarter, is a testament to the talent that this team has. We won despite a lot of bad breaks, and that's great. And and the reason that happened is that we outgained Mizzou 508 yards to 294 yards, and we ended the day with a 100% winning percentage. Once we turned it on, we were the better team. I would say, ultimately, if you want to be great, you have to win your bad games. That's something that's like an old cliche at this point. However, I don't think that we have proven, I don't think this Georgia team has proven that they are a consistently great team. Mm -hmm. Three really high-end, 100th percentile kind of performances, and two performances that were, if we look at our game on paper box score, two performances for UGA that were somewhere between the 60th and 30th percentile. I don't know that we can say that Mm -hmm. you are as good as you looked at the beginning of the year if you're going to play like this twice. Now, I think that this t- that the O-line issues can be cleaned up, that as Ratledge gets back into form and we adjust to the guys that we have up there and we settle on the five that we like instead of rotating as much, I think it can get better. But if we want to be competitive against Alabama, we have to not just look way better than we did on, against Missouri. We have to look dominant compared to what we did against Missouri. Ultimately, it's important to note mm-hmm. that Florida's best player is a defensive line, that one of Mississippi State's best players is a defensive end. That the best player in the nation, maybe, is a defensive end for Alabama. And Alabama's maybe second best player, who is not named Bryce Young, is another defensive end. So (laughs) I wouldn't be pissing down my leg right now if I were a UGA fan. And I am. But I also think it is realistic to, if not adjust your expectations, to be paying attention to this going forward. I think it matters how UGA plays next Saturday. I think that an ugly win tells you that maybe this team isn't one we should be thinking about but for being in the actual college football playoff. If this team is who we've said they are to this point this year, they're going to go out against Auburn and take them to absolute pieces because this is an Auburn team that doesn't do a lot right. If this defense wants to play against Bryce Young and the Ohio State like war machine up there, then they need to be able to take apart a very good running quarterback who doesn't throw very well against both Auburn and Florida. I've started the same deal. And (laughs) my message to you would not be freak out, but my message to you would be, let's keep our eyes open and see what the information we get going forward tells us about what our expectations should be. What a beautiful word picture. Thank you. I do feel better. I will say there, there were some, you know, some flashes of good. There were good things to worry about, and you touched on those throughout it. And I think that there's no better way to sort of create a a cute little package of these were the best things that happened in this game than by just reading down the overall team stat sheet on game on paper. If you wanted to look at this um, very simply, you know, there were a lot of things to be upset about, but there are a lot of things to still be proud about. We still have a great defense, despite all of the the errors that we just discussed and, and shared. So, yeah, I would encourage anybody to go sit with the stats, sit with these, enjoy them, take them in marinate in them i think you always as the season progresses have to be open to changing who you think a team is to changing your expectations Mm -hmm. for how the season should go and i don't think that this was a seminal moment where we have to say okay this is probably a sugar bowl team as opposed to a national title team or this is a capital Mm -hmm. one bowl team as opposed to a sugar bowl team whatever 
I don't think that's where we are, but I do think we saw some things that are fixable, but that we have to be honest with ourselves as fans if they don't get fixed. The offensive line keeps on looking undermanned, then that's just what they are, right? Like that is not, you, you are only as good as you are at some point. And I'm willing to give the offensive line a down day and I'm willing to give Stetson a down day. And I think Kenny McIntosh might've been hurt too. And so I'm totally willing to say, hey, we're in the thick of it. We're five games in. You're, you're just trying to make it undefeated to the bye week. And then you can kind of reevaluate get some guys healthy and move on to the hard part of your schedule. So I'm totally willing to see that, but I don't need us to beat Auburn 50 to nothing, but I need it to be a relatively non-competitive game in the third or fourth quarter, because this Auburn team, they got whipped around and beat up by Missouri and they won because of four miracles from God that Auburn gets because of Auburn Jesus. (laughs) You want me to take us out? Yeah, man, take us out. All right. This has been Chapel Bell Curve. You can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Shuffle Bell Curve. You can get in touch with us on those social media things by sliding up into those DMs or on traditional classic email at shufflebellcurve at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Snailbell Nowhere because that's, come on, it's 2022, <laughs> dude. Also, uh, why would we get a PO box? Anyway. If you like what you heard today, we'd love if you give us a rating and a review wherever you get your fine podcasts, whether that be, as is the case for most of you, at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podcast Addict or Stitcher or SoundCloud or whatever. We would also, if you <laughs> really want to support what you heard today and you'd like to become a part of a great community, we would love it if you would go over to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve and get into our community. For as little as $1 a month, you can get access to our Discord. For $3, you can get your own private early Patreon feed. And for $5, you can get access to our show notes as we record every week. And if you want to like really pony up, you can pay us $50 a month and we'll just give you a whole segment on our show. So we will catch you this weekend in the Classic City for the Deep South's oldest rivalry. But until then, go dogs. Go dogs.